This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. I have a two-for-one today, really special, two guests, Matthew Gardner and Andrew Turner. I'm happy to have you both here with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tina, for having us. We're super excited and honored and privileged and, yep, all the above. You join a long list of patriots that I've had the opportunity to have as guests on my podcast. You're in good company. How do you both know Ian Newland? Ian, you know, I think I met him through TikTok, and that's the connection we had. And you know what? The Marine Corps is so small, and that community is so small. We start talking, and that's that's how we know him. There's nothing like background or anything like that. It's just most of the people we met uh, or we've met through this process have been through like TikTok and those social media things, and one person knows another and another and another. That's really how it is. I would say ditto on that. When I started my podcast, I did not mean for it to be a military podcast. Just okay. was anybody who loves America, come on the podcast. It slowly morphed into a military podcast <laughs> because all of you veterans are completely amazing. And yeah. you just refer other veterans, other combat survivors to me. And it just kind of slowly happened that way. Yeah, that's incredible. That's that's interesting. Um, to be honest, like, even with our show, it's morphed into something completely different on how we how we envision it. And so I think we've learned through the creative process to kind of let that happen, if you will. Most people try to fight against it because they think their idea is like, this is it. You know, kudos to you to kind of lean into it and let it kind of take you where it is. Let's start with growing up. Can you both tell me a little bit about your family? Uh. Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York uh, in a little town called Elizabethtown uh, and nestled away in the mountains of the Adirondacks. And I grew up pretty simple. You know, um, I like to tell people one blinking light and three stop signs was my town. You knew everybody in the town by by their car lights and the way it sounded passing your house. You kind of knew who was going where at what time. At a young age, I, I always was, uh, I had a little bit of a passion of traveling and getting away from a small town, as I'm sure 99% of people that grow up in, in like a rural small town would would want to do. So at a young age, kind of bounced around playing hockey in different schools and then uh, started traveling to Nicaragua as a young child, uh, kind of doing like, uh, you know, go down, and help the poor people out, build houses, deliver food, go on tours and just kind of like volunteer and help out fast forward to college I just kind of things school never really was my thing really growing up like I made it through high school because of sports you know I think Matt and I are kind of similar in that that regard and school wasn't for me uh, but I tried to do the right thing per the the era we grew up in go to college get a degree and didn't really last long there got hurt playing hockey so I mean that was really the only thing keeping me going through school fast forward to about 23 when I joined the Marine Corps Matt, your turn. So, yeah, I grew up in uh, Lake Orion, Michigan, 
It is a suburb outside of Detroit. Similar to Andrew, I played sports, um, did a little bit of everything, but I, and again, I didn't like school. Um, my parents were divorced. Well, I'll, I'll rewind. My parents were divorced and I went to California for a little bit with my mom. I came back here to stay with my dad and um, I liked this area. I liked the friends I had. I grew up in church, so I ended up staying here. And, you know, as I got out of high school, I, I was more of a I was more of like a social person. I didn't think about the future too much. <laughs> I got out of high school. My dad told me, you know, you can either join the military, you can get a trade um, or, you know, figure something else or go to college, figure something out. And I knew I wasn't going to go to school. A lot like Andrew, I, I just didn't like school. I liked the, the social aspect of it, but I, I didn't really like the learning aspect of it. So I decided to do electrical work and, and do a trade and just kind of bounced around there. And I, I felt like at some point, I joined a little bit later than Andrew, but I felt like at some point I had just kind of wandered aimlessly <laughs> throughout most of my uh, teenage and 20s and found myself at uh, 26 years old thinking, wow, what am I doing? You know, I don't really know much about myself. I haven't really done much in my life and I need to figure something out. So that's where it led me. But yeah, I mean, I grew up in a small town. Parents were divorced, bounced back and forth from California to, to Michigan. And uh, here I am. Did either one of you have military in your families? I I didn't have any uh, active duty that I that I know of that I've ever met. My grandfather did, uh, you know, did his time in the reserves and my uncle did time in the reserves, but no active duty. My grandfather... Um, served in the Navy. A reoccurring theme on my podcast with my guest, and they normally bring it up. And I will ask you, did September 11th, 2001 have any effect on you joining the military or any effect period? That's a good question. Um, so Growing up in upstate New York, I remember that day, I think any New Yorker, New Englander, anybody that's really a patriot will remember where they were that day when they got the, the news. So I was in um, I was in science class in uh, ninth grade and they wheeled the TV in, uh, you know, with the, the, the VCR on it and wheeled it in and then plugged it in. And then that's when we we kind of saw everything and things kind of slowed down there for a second for me because a lot of the kids that I was in school with their fathers were a part of the the National Guard in the local area and the Air National Guard so as soon as it happened they got activated not only were we learning that you know our country was under attack but in in my little world things were being ripped apart from people and like kids were having to come out of school although we were so far away from the city there's a lot of airfield practice up where we are in the mountains. So it was instant deploying for them. So it was a very unique experience, you know, ended up joining years later, but being a New Yorker, seeing the uh, ground zero and just that whole thing that when I joined, that was something in the back of my mind. I was like, you know what, this isn't why I'm joining, but this is a hell of a good reason to have support too. Yeah. I, uh, I was actually, 21 at the time <laughs> and I was on my way to Canada and I remember I didn't have my radio on uh that day and I kept looking at people you could just tell by like looking at stoplights people in their cars and stuff people were just so upset something was going on 
I ended up turning my radio on and, and hearing what was happening. I stopped at a buddy's house that was close to downtown. And yeah, I mean, it was surreal. It was surreal. I, I don't think, I think after that day, it ignited something inside me that, you know, the, my patriotic side. And, but I think the after effects of 9 11, uh, especially with me, uh, you know, I think we'll maybe we'll get into this later with PTSD and some of the things. I have a very hard time around 9 11. It's, it's, it's a hard time for me every year. And uh, I don't know what it is, but, um, you know, I, I, I go through a lot of crying spells and it just is something inside of me that uh, it hurts really bad, you know. So, um, and I think that's just the after effect of serving and, and being um, there and, and seeing everything we've seen. It's just something about 9-11, man, that really, really hurts me and uh, triggers something different than it did actually on that day. Yeah, 9-11 holds a, a special place in my heart. So, On your journey to joining the Marines, was the Marines the first choice or was it the Army? Absolutely not. Was I, I say, Tina, I say absolutely not the army. Um, well, I, I thought told, so. And that's kind of an inside joke. If you know, you know, if you don't, you don't, right? You cran eater. Yeah, I, I love it. I love it. And unfortunately for the list, for the just the strictly listeners out there that can't see us, I saw that was a bait switch question. Looking back, my family was trying to push me into, towards going to the military before I made the decision. And my excuse, I was like, nah, I'm not like, if I ever join, I'm going to join the artist branch. I'm going to join the Marine Corps, like just to conversation get them off my back and then lo and behold like when I decided I was like okay I'm gonna do this it was absolutely hands down Marine Corps I didn't go into any other office yeah I, uh for me I never thought about any other branch I mean when I thought about uh, the military I thought about the Marines and wearing dress blues and slaying dragons and uh <laughs> no but it, honestly to go back to like what I was saying about where I was at in my life um if I was going to be a part of something, I wanted to be a part of the best. And uh, I wanted to challenge myself to the most extreme limits. And I wanted to be part of the most elite group in the world. And uh, that was part of my decision. And I wanted to wear dress blues. Everyone looks snazzy in dress blues. That's no doubt. <laughs> you know what is really funny, too? I don't know. Have you spoken to a lot of veterans, um, a lot of wounded warriors? We have in personal lives we have not yet had the opportunity okay. to connect with them on on virtually here to get them on the show all right i'll have some great ones to give you but the funny awesome. thing is the great thing that a lot of people don't realize in fact i have a tiktok account and i've started these little stories and i'm sure people don't get it and they're probably offended but on my caption <laughs> i have things like travis got blown up jeffrey got yeah. blown up because the funny thing is that all of these guys have such a great sense of humor and they will tell you, I got blown up. They'll yeah. say it over and over and over yeah. again. I got blown up. I, you know what's funny? I just looked at your TikTok page the other day. I saw the caption. It says Travis got blown up. I'm like, wow. There you go. There's not, a lot of, not much keep, uh, wonder in there. I keep waiting for somebody to say something like be real offended and not get it. But these guys have such a great sense of humor. There's no way around it. They got blown up. One of my first wounded warriors, and I found out too, a lot of them don't like to be called wounded warriors. Did you know that? I've started calling them combat survivors. That's what I had somebody tell me, call them a combat survivor. Travis Mills says he doesn't like to be called wounded warrior. He likes recalibrated warrior. 
recalibrated that he wants recalibrated like warrior yeah. but the funny thing was is one of my first wounded warriors i think he was um second travis vandella that's the one that you saw travis got blown up and lost both of his legs but the funny thing was i was supposed to be doing an interview with him at one point and his wife had to email me and say uh travis has covid we had to put him on some type of medicine and yeah. ever since he got blown up sometimes he has really bad reactions <laughs> and I just died laughing. And if you listen to that podcast, they're laughing. I'm laughing. I have tears coming down because they have such a great sense of humor about getting blown up. <laughs> yeah. no, I think it's great. I think in the veteran community, you'll find like the ability to embrace what we call embrace the suck and embrace the uh, circumstance of what you're in and just find the gratitude of what you have and laugh mm -hmm. about life. And I, I think that's probably where that comes from. Yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about Marines and your deployment. I want to know whatever you feel comfortable sharing, what that deployment was like. Well, tell me a little bit about your journey in the Marines, your deployment, where you met each other, correct? Mm -hmm. Maybe also some of the things that you saw, some of the things that you experienced that will always stay with you. That's a uh, really good questions. And I think uh, so I'd like to take it back in kind of an interesting uh, experience in the military, I think, for both Matt and I, where we kind of end up crossing paths. When our unit found out we were getting deployed, we had done a 45 day workup to shoot artillery nine months to 10 months in the year. So we were in the middle of a workup. During that workup, our chain of command got taken out by helicopter about 30 days, 30 to 40 days in. So like the right towards the end. And then all of a sudden we were mission changed. We were, you know, walking around pretending we were in vehicles, but none of us really understood where, what, what was going on. So fast forward to being home about a week or that, that weekend, we had a 96 came back for formation. And that's when we got the word that we were deploying to Afghanistan in 30 days. Our weekends were done and, and we were going as provisional infantry. Now, this is where Matt's world and my world start to come together. So what a lot of people don't necessarily understand, it's like it, it is a big numbers game. When you get deployed, There's there are certain things that have to be filled. So Matt was in a different unit and heard about our unit going and was like, boom. So he raised his hand again and then ends up over in our unit. So I think one of the most unique experiences, uh, and there's so many I could sit here and talk about for, for hours uh, and go into it, but I kind of wanted to think outside the box a little bit. That 30-day window when you get the word that your world's going to change and everything that you've been training for is necessarily set to the side, but your secondary job is what you're going to be focusing on. And then meeting all these different people that you haven't been training with. The only commonality is that they each wear a patch on their chest that says United States Marine. Sitting back and looking at that as an experience being like, we had 30 days to separate our unit into three different platoons. Acquire other Marines from other units, put them in a mix where we were already bonded and stuff. We had already gone through a lot to then 
start to do live fire missions with the guy to the right of you with a machine gun that you you literally just met. For me, I I when I was you know getting prepared for this, I I, I never really sat back and and thought how unique that was um, until thinking about coming onto the show. I met Matt when exactly that we were at a live fire machine gun range and we were doing buddy rushes i saw matt was a little bit older i was a young whippersnapper at 23 (laughs) and i was like yo is this guy gonna be able to keep up i mean he had he was worried about the old man matt i was i was too (laughs) (laughs) and again the only thing we knew about each other is that we had been through boot camp and we had earned the title united states marine all the other worry, there was no room for you to back out. You were in the seat and you were buckled in and you had to go with it. You talk about all of these men coming together for the first time. How long does it take for you to trust the person next to you with your life? Does that happen quickly? Matt, you want to take this one? Yeah, I mean... um, for me, it happens through that that process, like the workup Andrew's talking about. You go through so many mental, emotional, and physical things that uh, that push you, and you see the guy next to you um, not quitting, not stopping, and constantly right next to you. And you're like, okay, so now I know when the shit hits the fan, this guy's here. He's doing his job. Do you have those times where you're you're all miserable and you want to quit and you want to go home you want to see your families you want to do this and you're all you have is each other you know and you start laughing and joking and you know that you're in the same boat yeah i think that's that's where that trust comes through those training sessions and workups and and just being broke down to your absolute most vulnerable intimate spot mentally physically and emotionally and having to rely on the guy next to you to give you some sort of boost. What were your duties while you were there? And what do you remember about your first firefight? So our duties when we got in the country shifted from, you know, because like I said, during our workup, we were going to go in and shoot artillery uh, in November. Uh, They wanted us out by tax season of that spring. (laughs) That's exactly how it worked out, actually. When we got into country, we did a lot of a lot of securing. Well, the first 30 days we did was nothing but training and kind of getting ready. Then Matt and I had the opportunity to fly down into the Helmand province and help secure a base. So we did a lot of post-sitting, uh, a lot of uh, base logistics in terms of, uh, you know, making sure things that were coming in were safe, things were going out were safe, uh, and kind of providing that type of security and then pushing out around in our um, area of operation, uh, daily patrols and things like that. Matthew and I uh, were in a situation on October 26, 2009. That was, um, you know, in combat, there's a lot of different scenarios. There's a lot of different things as Marines we prepare for. Matthew and I had a really unique opportunity, and I don't want to speak for Matthew on this. This is this is an experience for both of us that are going to be with us forever. So, um, you know, Matthew and I responded to um, helicopters that had went down 
uh, in our in our area of operation, and we were the reaction force to go and handle what had to be handled. Matthew and I never that night never experienced a direct firefight. What Matthew and I experienced was something that I don't think is really ever touched on or talked about. Uh, when having so many different scenarios in combat, you know, you think as Marines, it's all about the, the, the guns and the fire and the hurrah taking lines and as great and as awesome as that is that unfortunately, you know, fortunately, and maybe sometimes, unfortunately, we can get into that. That never really happened for us. What Matthew and I saw was um, the effects of war without being able to engage. Um, that was unique. Uh, October 26th, and I know I can speak for Matthew, will forever. It changed us. It changed a lot about us, our aggression, our attitudes, um, our vulnerabilities, our lack of compassion, our numbness, all that. I think left us that day and we didn't have to fire one round, but we were out there for 76 hours. Matt, did you have anything you want to touch on that? Yeah, I remember that night very vividly because we were, I think we were like a month away from leaving and we had, uh, oh, we experienced a bunch of stuff in our deployment um, that was different, but this was, uh, this was extremely different. I remember I went to uh, what they had. What, what was the phone center? Oh, um, I don't know. Whatever the phone center was. But we were on QRF that night. It's a quick reaction force. And I came back and, you know, they always tell you, like, don't be complacent. Don't be complacent. Don't be complacent. And I remember we were on QRF. We did changeover with the former QRF. Um, and you're always supposed to prep. Right. So you're always supposed to get your three days worth of meals in there, get your three days worth of uh, water, fill up the trucks, do uh, PMs on them. And I remember it was so late that we were like, OK, we'll just do them in the morning. And uh, I went back in, in my rack. I laid there and I heard and felt this explosion that like I could feel in my intestines. It was like just so strong. And then I, I remember. Uh, Looking at my buddy, I'm like, okay, someone's going to come walking in here, you know, any minute. And then, you know, sure as shit, one of our corporals came in and says, let's go, let's go, let's go. We run out to our vehicles and um, we had there and, you know, I had about a quarter tank of gas. I was a driver and we had to drive blackout and it's the middle of the night with blackout is, you know, everything's uh, night vision, infrared on the Humvees and we didn't know what was going on. Uh, we got out to this crash site um, and there were people there. I remember my turret gunner um, said, you know, I, I got uh, identified people out here and we told them go condition one. It was actually uh, Delta, right? Delta was on our way to respond to a mission and they, uh, they responded to the crash site. And uh, so we started coordinating with them and and uh we had what we call a uh, turp with a icon chatter box and uh he started telling us that um there was a uniquely large size element making their own I mean, crash crashes in afghanistan and those areas are all propaganda for the taliban you know because they like to 
state claim. It's easy for them to be like, hey, look, what we're winning the war. We did this. Right. Even though it was a complete accident that happened, they didn't get shot down. There was, there was nothing like that. They would have state claimed for that propaganda to show. We were told there's a unique size element coming in. Um, and at the time, we, we had to call into our COC, which had to call into a higher COC, this and that to get any kind of support of any kind. Uh, I remember that uh, the captain that we were dealing with through Delta decided to take it into his own hands and called in a, a C-130 gunship, uh, which was pretty intense. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty intense. I laughed because it's like my defense mechanism, but uh, yeah, it was intense. But uh, the whole experience was... Uh, you know, seeing what we saw that night, unfortunately, not one of uh, not one of the Marines made it, you know, from that crash. And what we were told to do was to load the Marines into our Humvees and bring them back to base. And then that changed. There was a lot. It wasn't just bodies. You know, there was a lot. And uh, so it was uh, an experience that will forever change me. And like Andrew said, uh, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, we didn't uh, fire around, but uh, we got the call on artillery. I think that the the long term effects of of that night, not just what we saw, not just what me and Andrew saw, and it, it was it was just pure destruction. It hit home because they were us; they were Marines. Did you, either one of you, lose friends? or people that you knew? We never lost any Marines in our unit while we were deployed, thank God. We lost more Marines when we got back due to either suicide or uh, drinking and drugging. What was your journey out of the military? It's interesting that those questions follow each other or whatever, because they're so strongly related, you know, because... When that happened to Matt and I, we, you know, I had a couple years left in and, and then he went on to serve a few more years than me. That night completely for me made me sit back and take a look at life in a completely different manner. Fast forward now to getting out of the Marine Corps. I, I had no idea what the hell was happening. And it's been such a long journey, but I struggle with, you know, PTSD. I've got a little bit of TBI going on, but what hurts me the worst is my aggression. Uh, my aggression, you know, in the military, especially in the Marine Corps, that aggression could be channeled. It's easy. So we're going to the field for 30 days, you know, and then it's just all about training warriors to go to combat yeah, and be able to handle those situations. So it was easy to channel that aggression. Here's something I've never asked someone. You'll be the first, you two, lucky. How do you explain PTSD to someone who has no idea what that even means? What is that PTSD like for you on a daily basis? I think that's kind of a two-parter. Um, if I didn't know what it was for a really long time until it was explained to me that it's a chemical change in your head. It's a chemical change in your brain when, and under a certain amount of stress and fear and anxiety, something changes in your head. Yeah. So there's the medical side of it. And then there's a personal side that everybody's a little bit different, different triggers, different effects to the trigger, you know, 
Um, everybody's a little bit different, Matt. So yeah, as far as the medical term, that's that's exactly what it is. And I remember even the situations we went through, especially you know over there or whatever. When I got out, uh, just to caveat on the previous question, I was medically retired ten years in due to kidney stones, and I was passing one in the Philippines uh, where I thought I was dying, and they had to airlift me out. It was lodged in my ureter. Yeah, and it's funny because when I went to the doc at the time, they thought that uh, stuff was going on because I had. Uh, bumped uglies with somebody in the Philippines. <laughs> so I had to try to explain to him that that wasn't the case. That it somebody... wasn't because you were drinking 12 Mountain Dews a day, was it? No, no. <laughs> it was, no, as a matter of fact, I was so healthy in the Marine Corps. I ran so much and drank water. Uh, it's just something with the exercise that created a calcium deficiency. I ended up having seven surgeries in my kidneys to remove kidney stones before they finally retired me. You know, I remember when I was doing the psychological portion of my claim for the PTSD, I talked to the psychiatrist telling her about our incidents and she's like, well, you know, are you bothered by this? And I'm like, yeah, it's whatever, you know what I mean? She's like, listen, you need to claim this because these are things that might not manifest themselves for years. Vietnam veterans that feel this or see this until they're in their fifties, something might hit them. Yeah. So for the PTSD aspect of it, I didn't really start feeling some of that, those effects until after I got out and touch it again on 9-11. For some reason, it triggers a lot for me. Um, and then stuff I don't see, like disassociation, being uh, emotionally, mentally kind of not there, you know, where I think like it's normal and I don't think nothing's wrong. And then other people look at me or, or say like, what's going on? And I'm like, nothing. You just checked out still have problems with kidney stones or are you all done with that? I haven't. I've, I've had issues here and there because I, I don't really exercise as much as I should or I did, but uh, now you're afraid to exercise a little bit that and uh, that and you really don't want to and I really don't want there it is Tina 41. I don't have any cartilage in my knee. Uh, Tina, he's the oldest 41 year old. You're gonna ever <laughs> Put some weight on. Uh, hey, yeah. I get it. If I have a choice of watching TV or getting on the treadmill, Loved running. Oh, yeah. okay. You do? I did. Okay. Well, Matt, you answered a question that I was going to ask. Uh, maybe you could elaborate. How does PTSD manifest itself to you? And can you feel it coming on? So for me, my PTSD is a daily thing as far as being able to emotionally, mentally connect to a situation and one thing me and Andrew talk about all the time especially on a show is being present in the moment I felt like for years now I'm in this out-of-body experience where I'm in a room and people are laughing and having a good time and I can't connect emotionally or mentally with what's going on so that's my biggest thing is I and that's on a daily basis that you feel that that extreme? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sometimes I'm there, you know, and the only time, I'll be honest, you know, the few times that I can is with my daughter where it's just, I can connect with her, but on a normal day to day, I'll get glimpses every once in a while. But most of the time I look at people who are just able to be in the moment and laugh and enjoy themselves. And 
I, I just feel so disconnected. How old is your daughter? And does she know when this is going on? Or do you have to explain to her so she doesn't think that dad is ignoring her or doesn't care? She's 11. And um, so right now she's not into hanging out with dad. So I don't think she really cares. But the one thing I've always, always made it a point is that no matter what I'm feeling or going through, it's not reflected on her. So even if I had to laugh and fake it or whatever, I never would ever transfer that to her. Certain times it was exhausting. If I had her for a weekend and I wasn't able to feel emotionally connected, I had to put a smile on my face the whole weekend. I did it because I don't ever want her to feel the effects of me not being there. Are you in the moment right now? I'm in the moment, yeah. No, it's just weird. It's hard to explain. I just don't feel like you're into this at all, Matt. I think we're going to have to end it. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to explain. Like you're there. You know how people can naturally just like get into something or be spontaneous and laugh? It takes me a minute. It's like this old Chevy that's warming up. Did you have to pump yourself up before we started this? No, I was excited about this. Did you know you were talking to me? Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's just, it's hard to explain. It's those spontaneous moments that most people can enjoy and that most people can be a part of and where I feel like I'm not quite all there. And I don't know, maybe Andrew feels differently, but I do feel excitement for things. Just, it's hard. It's those spontaneous moments. It's a process. I think what Matt's trying to touch on too is that like, so every day for me, as soon as the alarm goes off, I'm like, all right. When do I got to put the face on? Uh, What do I have to accomplish for the day to make my boss happy, make people all around me happy? I'm always on the the defense almost uh, and making sure that everyone else, I can look around and and see what I have to do for the day for everybody else. Um, And then that obviously fogs me up. That's exhausting too, isn't it? You're exhausted. Super exhausting. I miss things all the time. I don't remember things as like I think that I am and... I suck at managing things. And so put that all in with, and then how fast life moves out here. And then you seeing people get upset about this and that, like, that's when it starts triggering for me. It's like, I, I feel that Matt and I, along with a lot of other people, veterans or people of trauma in general, just look at this whole, like everyday freaking rat race differently. Um, it's not thrilling for me. I've gone through, Every two years since I've been out, I've been in a different, different job, you know, restarting and having to retell your story and, and start in a different area and put, it's just like you said, it's tiring. The military does a great job about training you so that when you find yourself in that moment, that that muscle memory kicks yeah. in, right? Spot on. You do what you need to do to survive. You do what you need to do to protect your brother who is standing next to you, your sister. They don't do such a great job afterward. And when you finally are able to take a breath, you start to fall apart. Those those breaths can take years. What do we need to do in the military and as a society at whole to help our veterans. And a lot of times, like yourselves, that injury you can't see. So it's easy to ignore because you're not missing limbs. Right. Uh, That's a good question. I think overall answer, 30,000 foot view, every 
every service member, whether they have to be vetted or not to the level of should have healthcare provided to them to go where they feel comfortable uh, back in their hometown or, or wherever they deem fit to go get healthcare, they should be have access to healthcare. It shouldn't be funneled into another government facility uh, and ran, ran and, and organized that it shouldn't. It's, that's, that's the number one thing overall. I think in society, I think there are great pockets of people and individuals and uh, businesses and uh, nonprofits that really do try to help. Let's broadcast it. That's why we doing what we're doing on our show. We want to bridge that gap. We want to be able to exploit all these resources and things that are, are out there. We just got to look for it. I don't think that that's, that happens. I agree with the healthcare thing. I, I, you know, what, what me and Andrew have found through this process, especially with talking to each other, and we'll get into probably why we, we started the whole podcast thing, is every veteran's different, and it's so hard. They give you this blanket map, you know, when you're getting out of what to do. And one thing you realize in the military is everybody's so different. They come from different walks of life. Some people from, a lot of them from broken homes, uh, child abuse. I mean, everybody, some of them come from great homes, affluent. So everybody's different. Some people get out and they hit the ground running and they take off and, you know, they're, they're fortune 500 companies. And some people just go right back to what they were doing, which was nothing. It's a very hard situation where you have to try to bridge that gap to make those resources um, available for everybody and veterans themselves a lot of times you know they, they're so tired when they get out they don't reach out then that's the problem that you know there's so many loopholes like Andrew said there's you know you gotta do this you gotta call this and you get there you're on hold for 500 minutes with this person yeah they just get tired so that's what we like to do when we when we talk about this stuff is talk about our experiences and talk about resources and things we have found to make it easier for for veterans transitioning out did you two ever watch the miniseries Band of Brothers? A hundred times. Andrew? He's going to say no. Listen, before I answer this, Tina, can let me just, I, don't <laughs> have, I didn't have a TV until my girlfriend moved in with me. I had a, a couch, a computer, and a studio that I put together. I don't watch things. You don't I, watch TV? Tina, this is TV is my life. Yes. <laughs> you see my shirt? TV yeah, is my life. Besides well, loving America, I love TV and I'm a nerd. Let's just cut Andrew out of this picture. <laughs> the reason why I ask about Band of Brothers, and I don't know, Matt, if you can remember at the end of it, it's so interesting when you get into the psyche of veterans because at the end of it, they tell you what happened to those people when they came home. Yes. I don't know why it's really amazing and fascinating to me that these men who went through so much, mm -hmm. accomplished so much while they were over there, and then a lot of them come back and he's a taxi cab driver. He's a janitor. Right. It's so interesting to me because you go and you GI Joe and you conquer the world and you feel all of this energy and I can do anything. And they just fall back, get right into or come home and you fall apart because that's when everything hits. I don't know why, but I find that completely fascinating when they go over what everybody did when they came home. And that's a lot of times what, you know, what happens to veterans here. I think you kind of fall into um, what is comfortable pre 
right? So like, okay, well, what do I do now? Well, this is kind of what I was doing. So let me fall into this. And, uh, and that's it. You know, you, you just kind of fade off into oblivion and it's, it's sad. And shows like that, like the Band of Brothers or the, the Which Jarhead. Which you would know if you watched it. Yeah, right. Or the jar, the Jarhead movies out there. Uh, <laughs> to be 100% honest and transparent, I avoid all those types of shows. Really? I avoid them. They, they make me... Uh, Nervous? They make my head go back into what if situations, and mm. um, you know it's a love hate relationship that I found with the Marine Corps. But I've hit hit my ten year mark of being out, and I just feel like my feet are on the ground where I can like take a couple steps and be confident. It's been a long, long, long journey. Well, it's that just- is what it is for each veteran. It's his or her own journey, and what sets someone else off. How many have I talked to that they'll say? Blow off all the fireworks that you want. I really don't care. That's not what sets me off. Every person is different. What are you doing to help yourself? Do you both go to therapy or is there something that you do to help alleviate that PTSD? I'll go first, Andrew. I do therapy um, and I am on medication um, that I've been on since, let's see, uh, I started medication in 2011 when we were on our deployment to Okinawa, I started noticing that I felt like I was crawling out of my skin uh, while I'm very tight. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing that since then. And of course I changed different medicines. One thing that I found has the best effect uh, with me is, is talking to Andrew and talking to other veterans who understand what I'm going through. And uh that's why we talk on a regular basis. Therapist is great. I have a PTSD therapist and I have a regular psychiatrist, but sometimes the best therapy I get is just shooting the shit and talking about laughing, talking about uh, past experiences. Um, anything above that, I try to understand why I'm feeling what I'm feeling and just process it and not ignore it. Because I think ignoring how I'm feeling or dealing with is you know, you kick the can down the road and before you know it becomes uh, explosives. I'm on medication. I've been up and down the last 10 years with the medication route. Oh, there'll be times I'm like, okay, I need to buckle down and do it. Within a couple of years, I was on 13 different psychoactive medications that were completely mind controlling, just walking around like I was just like a robot. I had big turnoff with the medications. I didn't really like pharmaceuticals for the last five to six years. I've um, relied pretty heavily on medical marijuana that kind of brought me to the end of last year when I decided that I I needed to start addressing things instead of just kind of like smoking myself to numbness so I made the commitment to go on different medications and kind of have more of a back support of where I get the information and kind of like hey go ask about this medication um, so I just kind of surrounded myself with different people and it's kind of helped me kind of go down that avenue because I was very turned off by it. Throwing me on certain medications, every medication they were giving me, Tina, was, how do they put it? Well, this medication has shown a secondary relief for this, but the primary goal for this medication is like someone with schizophrenia, but it's been shown to help with depression. I'm sure there's medications. The first sign is helps with depression and or PTSD, things of those natures, right? Anxiety. 
So I just felt like I was a tennis ball going back and forth. So I didn't really have much trust in the process. All right. My next two questions, and then we'll move on from the PTSD. When you are really in the depths of PTSD, is your first inclination to be by yourself or to get with people to help you through it? And has it ever become so bad that you were seriously thinking to yourself, I don't even want to be here anymore. What am I doing? I was going to say, I know I can speak for Matt, both Matt and I, we completely like to seclude ourselves. We don't want to be around anybody. We're not looking for help. We're not looking for that support person. I guess within our process of doing what we've done together the last year, this is our source now. Like if we need to be alone, we actually end up kind of calling each other, but we're not trying to look for outside help. It's a very dark place and the lack of understanding that I think we would feel trying to get outside help and having to explain ourselves is, is like the worst. Pretty much exactly what Andrew said. He knows when I'm going through something and I know when he's going through something and I just kind of check out, uh, you know, go rogue for <laughs> two or three days. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, Tina, my daughter is my soul and she's my life and I never will be at a place no matter how bad I'm feeling, where I would put her through something like that. So that thought never enters my mind. But at the same token, do I get to a place emotionally sometimes where I'm very exhausted? Yes. Check out and you isolate. And my mom knows and my brother, everybody in my family knows, you know, I'll just kind of go dark for two, three days. And um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, I've had points in my life where sometimes it's hard to get up to do the dishes or do laundry or take showers or any of that stuff. We start self-destructing. And I think that's a pattern that, that Matt and I both share is it's almost like an inner anger with yourself. So you stop doing these things, the self-maintenance, the communicating with other people. When you start shutting yourself down in this world, that's truly whatever happens inside of us it truly brings you to this scary place that you're by yourself and you feel it it's like you feel you look outside and things everything makes you angry and it's like puts you into this world and and I, I'd have to be honest with anybody that's listening that's that struggles with PTSD or has been in, in any type of situation that we're, we've talked about today I think it's um and I don't know how to say this without I think it's completely normal for people say for Matt, Matt and us and other people of trauma to like, go through a time when you start thinking about what if I wasn't here? Not that the action would actually take place. I think it's a horrible stigma that people can't say that they thought about it. Like Matt said, he's got his daughter. People have things that they're like, you know, absolutely not. It's not a thing. It's never going to happen. That's awesome. But when you're in those trenches alone, and you're in these dark ass places, I think it's natural for you to, man, what if I wasn't here, right? How much easier would it be on everyone else? The hurting would stop for me. But what keeps me going is when I get to that point, because I've been there, I've locked my things up in a safe and dropped it off at a buddy's house and said, don't ask questions. And he's never has. He's never asked once one question. And every time I've dropped my safe on there with my gun and everything, I'm just being real as real can get. But it's not that I planned on doing it but all it takes is a weak moment but being able to identify that and have those conversations with yourself and then be like you know what 
I'm not going to put a fucking burden on my family because I couldn't hack it. That's the Marine in me, right? That's the, I'm talking shit to myself, calling myself a, a weak, weak person. But again, at the end of the day, whatever triggers my mind to not put that burden on my family, that's why I continue going on. I lied. I have one more question about PTSD and then I promise we'll move oh, on. Come on, let's go. Hit it. <laughs> With your PTSD, do you have hope for better days ahead that it will become less difficult or is this something that you've resigned to okay this is just going to be a part of my life and i have to learn to deal with it the best that i can not only have hope but i i think that uh in certain aspects my life has got better it's just i think the more you understand your situation and the more you understand your certain bouts with things the easier it is to deal with i do find hope i mean i, I have moments where have clarity and find pure joy in, in the innocence of things and feeling happy and for me it's completely understanding what i'm going through and being patient with myself and uh yes it's something that i'll have to deal with the rest of my life and am i worried when i'm older when my brain gets weaker that it's going to get worse and yeah i am it scares me but you know like i said i think understanding and is the most important thing um understanding's huge learning who you are as a person is, is huge you have to have those conversations with yourself i think one thing i want to touch on Lou, is that it really destroys your confidence as a person you go from such a high intensity environment and then you're literally on top of the world and all the aggression and everything that you you used every day as your uh, arrows in your quiver are no longer things and the destruction of the confidence, I think there's nothing, life's shitty without hope. I start my every day with hope that I can make it through it. So for me and my experience and kind of, again, where Matt and I align, it's taken me 10 years to figure out where the hell I'm going out here. And if it wasn't for what, turning on the record button and talking through our therapy sessions, it's kind of given me, you know what, all right, here's my, I have confidence i have the ability to create and build things i don't need that organization to keep pumping my tires to keep me moving forward i have all the tools let's break it down and figure it out honestly if it wasn't for disarranged our show like if you would have talked to me this time last year i would have been a completely different person so yeah there is hope because i think in our situation right here, we're slowly chiseling away at it and we're just trying to identify. Once the enemy's identified, it's easy to engage. <laughs> That's in us. Yeah. But it's just not translated properly. And that's what we're here to do. Well, you gave us a natural segue into disarranged. That's right. What is that <laughs> yeah. all about? So disarranged is exactly what it is. It's, um, you know, Matt and I have realized how mentally and emotionally we are disarranged from our experience in the military. Aren't we all? Um, exactly. And Tina, I'm glad you said that because when Matt and I decided to turn the cameras on and hit the record button, one of our biggest missions, and, I, and, and I'm not going to go into some elevator pitch. One of our biggest missions was like, dude, you I can do an elevator pitch if you want. No, I, I'm not. He's great at those. So don't, I'm pretty that. good at him, Tina. Don't get me going on that. <laughs> but, you know, we're civilians now. We're veterans, but we are civilians now. We would be fools to start something and show people the recovery aspect of what we're just two veterans 
perspectives and not open it up to the civilian sector, right? Like we are them now. I think, and in order for us to do this, we have to understand as veterans do just because their first firefight wasn't dropping one five fives on a bunch of people. (laughs) They'd been through trauma too. They'd have a a life full of of trauma and, and issues that they might not understand how to emotionally deal with just like we that's what it is your emotions take over so with this arranged we're just helpers that's who we are like matt and i are just wired that way we wholeheartedly believe in helping people it just so happens to be we're veterans so that's what we're kind of using as our our wedge into like hey we kind of know what we're talking about because we're living it every day right so that's it that's how transparent we are two jarheads kind of coming together on a weekly show and trying to make something entertaining is kind of entertaining in itself. Like if you go back to our first episode, <laughs> to like our 15th to our 30th, you can see that we're giving it a go. Like we're giving it a shot. And I just think we're super unique, not in just us as people, but what our show provides is that we you know we're live every week. We do buddy checks. We call people live. We allow people to call into the show live. If, if we're talking about a situation uh, say PTSD or something. And Tina, you wanted to call in and say, you know what? Like I had this situation in my life and it kind of like I connected with you or Matt Andrew because you said this. You can do that because we're here to help people. So we'll stop. We'll slow down the show. We don't have to jump into the next segment because if someone calls in, that means somebody was listening, wasn't hearing. They were listening to us. We give that respect right back because when it's recorded and it's on our channel, two more people could hear it. One person could connect to the person on the call or two people could connect to us. Like it's just incredible, the compounding effect that helping one person can do. That's why we we are who we are. And that's why we're disarranged. Well, I was never in the military, but I definitely had many years where I dealt with PTSD. Us as a veteran community, it's not all about me, 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 maybe with the VA, that's a whole different battle, but like, (laughs) it's not fair. Yeah, it's not fair. I don't want my and I say this all the time. This is where I get passionate. I don't want those four years to be the best four years of my life It's bullshit. And I don't want to go out and try to get fixed and not take someone else with me that it might not have been a four year experience. It might have been a 20 minute experience that ruined somebody. Who am I to make it about me? Right? Like we need to bridge that and come together because red, white, blue politics aside, dude, we're all human beings and we've all been through shit. That's it. Like everybody's a little bit disarranged. If you take a step back in your life and look at it, everybody's a little bit disarranged. I don't care how well you think you figured this experience out. There's a part of you that's a little bit disarranged. It's got a little bit of a question and that's it. I think that uh, when we started this, we talked a lot about, it's funny you brought up, you had like this vision of what your podcast is going to be and how it's transformed into something. And one thing we said was like, listen, this is not going to be a conservative strictly military we want to talk to people who have been through shit because ptsd touches everybody traumatic events touch everybody mental health touches everybody doesn't discriminate against white black veteran non-veteran it's women men children we want a place where people can come and feel safe Mm -hmm. to listen to share if they'd like to but everybody can kind of get a little piece of something here or there that they can identify with. Judgment-free, who gives a shit what, what your political views are and all that crap. Like, we all go through stuff. We're all human. We all deal with shit. 
We all have horrible things that happen to us. That was our biggest goal. Let's create a place that's welcoming to everybody. How many episodes have you put out and how often do you do your podcast? We are going into episode 34 and we do it weekly. We started in November. We've taken a couple weeks off throughout the process and journey for technical issues and mental health breaks. So yeah, we're on episode 34 and we go live every Friday night at 8 p.m. on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, TikTok, and I am I missing Facebook, someone else? Facebook, Facebook sorry, Instagram. Facebook. You are all over the place. <laughs> we try to hit all different uh, all different markets. Uh, there's different strokes for different folks, right? Is your handle the same on all of those? Yeah, you can type the disarranged talk show. We in the beginning were calling disarranged 1775. I think kind of going through a little bit of a branding. The 1775 was confusing with the disarranged, and uh, it was just the beginning. So we're going through a little bit of rebranding as we keep growing. But it's disarranged talk show. And tell me one more time where you're found. Uh, we are on Spotify. We are on YouTube. Uh, we are on TikTok. We are on Facebook, Twitch, Twitter. You do Facebook. all those simultaneously? Yeah, we live stream on four platforms at one time. Yep. I will make sure I put all of those handles in the show notes for anybody Thank listening. You. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Wow. And Instagram. And Instagram. Yep, and Instagram. <laughs> and that brings us to our next part of the podcast. Here we go. Guys, whatever you feel comfortable talking about, do you see America heading in the right direction? Are there things in America that need to change to get us back on the right track if you feel like we're on the wrong track? Are you afraid to say anything? I wanted to see if Matt wanted to go first or if I wanted Because to this is a problem. Let me say something before. I have tried really hard to be non-political for a really long time. And now I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do that anymore. Yeah. Because I am... Really afraid. Before you start, I'm always interrupting you. Have you seen that episode that I had? No. Uh, Rachel Levine. Do you know who that is? I know who Rachel Levine is. Turner doesn't. Dude, I'm going to get roasted in the comments. Rachel Levine and Sam, I don't know his last name, a picture of them at the French ambassador's house, I believe. Do you know who okay. I'm talking about, Matt? Uh, no, nah, I'm not familiar. These are two people. Mm-hmm that are representing the United States of America. And yes. I'm sorry, well, I'm, I'm not sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not sorry. I have an issue with this because we are the strongest, most powerful nation on the earth. This sends the wrong message. Yeah. <laughs> it's all about love and acceptance and everything, but this is sending the wrong message to the world. Yeah, so to, to answer your question. <laughs> are we on the wrong track, Matt? Guess what my opinion is. <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are on the wrong track. Let me say this. There are positives to what has transformed in our world. And I'll say the positives are more tolerance for certain people with deficiency. Back when I was younger in high school, if you had some sort of mental health thing or, you know, if you were, gosh, I don't even know what word to say without getting in trouble anymore. Um, yeah, if you're mentally challenged, if you're extremely overweight, all these things, you know, you got made fun of. Nowadays, they're accepting. They help uplift people like that. And I think those are the positive things that have transpired. Now, unless you're on social media. Unless you're on social media. The, the negative things is we're at extreme ends, right? 
and obviously we're at a, a place where me as a white Christian straight man, I can't speak my mind without um, someone telling me to shut up because I, because uh, you're a bigot. And, and you know, what's funny, Tina is I tell people all the time is I meet people of all walks of life, gay, straight, black, Asian, Mexican, or Spanish, no one ever brings up race. No one ever brings up any of that crap. People just go to work and they pay their bills and all this stuff. The only people that bring that up is is the media. But yeah, I think we're, we are on the wrong track. We're focusing on things that uh, nine times out of 10, no one gives a crap what other people are doing with their life. So we don't need to focus on that. We have huge issues in our country <laughs> that, that are not being talked about. And uh, I think one particular party likes to focus on things that um, are important in fantasy land and you know people aren't dealing with the reality and have general issues like with paying for gas paying rent buying groceries uh, all these things that normal americans are having trouble with you know we're worried about if someone can wear the unicorn hat without getting made fun of and and shit like that yeah i think that's definitely we're on the wrong track on that we need to uh pay attention to what the hell is going on but it's, it's easy for people to put on blinders i guess to touch on the condition of america talking to matt before the show i was like dude i don't know i don't want to be the one to put my opinion behind our name right and then and i was like i don't know until i heard this uh there was a story i wanted i wanted to bring to light and i think this will answer your question um and this is was told from a, an old buddy of mine. And regardless of where we are in our relationship, this story, it very hits home. Um, you know, an, uh, an old World War II veteran was asked, which happens to be his grandfather was asked, you know, what can, what can you give me that when you leave this, this earth and this experience, what can you give me to make, make my journey maybe a little bit easier? He paused took a second to think about it and he looked up at the American flag and he goes, son, he goes, as long as we've got that flag and those colors on that flagpole, he goes, everything's going to be okay. So regardless of where our country's at, and yes, we are on the wrong track, but I think who we are to the core of our country is always going to prevail. We are very resilient, we're very young and we're very scrappy. As long as those colors are flying, I do believe that we are going to be fine. Everybody in any culture in history has gone through what we're going through. And I think it's just a unique time that we're in that media technology can broadcast things in a certain manner and make us fear. At the end of the day, there's a silent majority that are just trying to live their lives, live as patriotic as they can and enjoy their time. Tell me what America means to you. America to me means uh, exactly what it is, opportunity. Uh, you can find something that you love and you can create your whole life around it. No matter how long it takes you to get there, whether in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, we are in such a unique time in this country to be whatever and whoever you want to be. You just got to find that focus and drive and you can go after it. That's what America means to me. Yeah, America is uh, such a special place because you have where we're at right now where you can pretty much say anything you want about it. And then you have this group that is still willing to 
go and protect people's rights that speak like that. And then I think at the end of the day, like to caveat what, what Andrew said, if something happened where we needed to rally and gather as a country, it would happen. In the midst of all of this extreme garbage that's going on, I think if something, if we needed to really rally behind our country, it would happen. And I think that's what, why America is, is such a special, wonderful place. It's, it's a melting pot of different stories, different colors, different experiences, different ways to love, different ways to do everything. And at the end of the day, we all rallied around one thing. And I think that thing is is the idea of a greater purpose in our country and our flag. And uh, hopefully it stays that way. It has been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your American story with us. Awesome. Tina, we, uh, we just want to first off, thank you very much for talking with us and giving us the opportunity and your platform to come on and uh, shoot the shit with you and teach you a little bit about uh, who we are. Um, and it's been awesome getting to know you through this process. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com for social media links, patriotic merchandise, and to sign up for the We the People newsletter. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country. 